0: Uh, which is from the book of Philippians, and it is chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Senteke to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help with these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, sorry we're not back in John again, um, but it just turned out that way um, with the way things lined up. So it's not just uh, one standalone, but two standalones, which kind of stand together alone. <laughs> let me, anyway, let me pray, and we'll try and do better. Father, as we come before your word now, um, we thank you for it. Uh, We thank you that we always have your help when we come to this moment. By your spirit, we have help. We have help to hear, help to listen, help to preach, help to obey. And so please be our ever-ready help, we pray, in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we don't have much time to lose. We've got two verses to work our way through, so let's not delay. But of all the verses, you might have heard that and thought, there's a fair bit of Philippians. Why? Why those two verses? Of all the verses that you could have chosen from Philippians? Well, the thinking is, because Paul uses this moment in the book of Philippians, It, it structurally it comes at the very end of the body section of the letter, where Paul practically, very practically uh, applies so much of what he's written so far in the book to the Philippians and applies it to a very specific practical situation. And so that includes, this practical application includes what we looked at last week. Do you remember if you were here? Uh, we looked at last week, Paul's words in, in Philippians 1. 18 to 26, where Paul kind of lays out his big life, like this is what my life is going to be about. My eager expectation and hope in my life is I will not be ashamed, but that Christ will be honoured in my body, whether I live or whether I die. Doesn't matter. Christ needs to be honoured in my body. How will you do that? Well, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does it mean to live is Christ, Paul, then? So you're going to honour Christ in your body while it lives and living is Christ, what will you do? He's like fruitful labour, going to work hard. What for What to what end? Well, the joy and progress of others' faith. Their faith in the Lord Jesus. That's what I'm going to work towards. So, the big picture of the book of Philippians is kind of partnership in the gospel. Paul is saying to them, hey, we have been partners in the gospel, but you also in the church, you must work together and be partners in the gospel side by side. Now, because we all know that it's easy to kind of nod along to, you know, maybe it was the same in Philippi as it is here, it's easy to nod along to a sermon and easy to nod along to everything that Paul's been saying. And you think, that that, that was a good point. I like what you said just then. That, that was good. As long as he's not talking about, of course, you. Right There's a level of kind of comfortability which you can enjoy a sermon or, or the letter that Paul's writing so long as you're thinking... Well, wow, I know some people who needed to hear that. I was thinking about, um, you know, thinking of an example of that is King David, isn't it? King David, who sinned so awfully, adultery, organized the murder of an innocent man. Nathan the prophet comes to him, And he tells him a story, do you remember the story? He says, you know, there was a rich man, he had lots and lots of sheep. There was a poor man, he had one sheep and he loved that sheep, right? And and that sheep was kind of like part of the family. Well, the rich man with all of his sheep had a visitor coming to town and he wanted to provide some lamb for dinner. And instead of taking out one of his sheep, he went and took the poor man's sheep, his only sheep, his beloved sheep, and used it. And King David, whilst he doesn't think that any of this has anything to do with him, has a particular reaction. That man surely must die right? So long as, I mean, that's, that's informed by who he thinks he's talking about. Until Nathan says, no, you're the man. You are the man. In the context of Philippians, you might be sitting there through the reading of this letter, say so you're in Philippi and it's being read out, and you hear people, uh, Paul, talk about, beware of those dogs and those evildoers in chapter 3. And you're like, whew, I would, I would not like to be that person that he is actually talking about in that moment. And then a bit later, he says, there are people who are enemies of the cross. And you think, oh man, I know some people who needed to hear that. But thankfully, it is not me. He instructs people to be selfless, to consider the needs of others, to not complain. And you think, yep, I know some people who needed to hear that. I wonder how we'd go, how this would go down, if we actually, toward the end of the sermon began to name names of the people that needed to hear that. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Let's get to the end of the sermon. Everyone's a bit, oh, okay, (laughs) a bit nervous. Ben, you needed to hear that. That was for you. Don't you laugh. That was for you too, Jackson. You know, it's like, (laughs) I mean, that would would be, you know, you'd be interested, wouldn't you? But that's pretty much what Paul does in these verses. I've been teaching along. You've been hearing this letter. Now, Euodia and Syntychei. You need to work this out what is clear in the new testament is that god cares more about the spiritual health of a church than the size of a church how could you know that well because it never mentions the size of the church right the modern obsession i think is with the size of a person's church most material is how to grow your church Actually, gladly there's some, but a minority is a healthy church. And yet that is what Paul spends his letters writing about. To have a healthy church, pure in doctrine, holy lives, united together as you live with one another. Now, the desire for unity, which is kind of what this passage is mainly focused about, is not unique to Christians. I think the whole world wants to get along. We sing about these kinds of things. John Lennon's saying, imagine, and here's what... He imagined, imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Don't think that's true. It'd be hard to imagine. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Yeah, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Louis Armstrong saying, what a wonderful world. And what did the wonderful world look like? Well, it included this. I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. That's a lot to read into a handshake, isn't it? In that case, I said, I love you to a bunch of used car salesmen the other week when I was trying to look for a car for my daughter. (laughs) So, Anyway, I don't think they heard it like that. The Black Eyed Peas saying, where is the love? We want unity today don't we the problem is we live in such a divided world that it almost seems impossible right now if we're honest like can we unite like across australia can we unite it seems almost impossible left and right we'll have unity so long as you become what i am you know you agree with me We have different ideas of what will achieve unity, even in our own own country. Look at the conversation that our whole country is having around the voice. Some say it will unite. Literally, others are saying that will divide. So we are divided on what even will unite us. In this world, the, the church of God, I think, has an opportunity to be known as the united people. We are the ones who can unite and live together as one. You want to see what unity looks like, world, starving for it. You want to see what it looks like, look to the church of God. That's our opportunity. And so this little situation with, with two women, I think, is just so instructive and practically instructive for us in getting there. Notice, first of all, how, how desperate Paul is for their reconciliation. Two women in the church in Philippi, and Paul is desperate for their reconciliation. See how he begins? I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. So in the Greek, the, the, their words come first. So if you're going along in the letter and it would say, Euodia, I entreat. Syntyche, I entreat. They are both equally singled out. He's not getting into like a blame game. It's like it's mainly you, Euodia. It's mainly you, Syntyche. No, I don't know who started, but you both need to get together and end it. He entreats them, he says, twice. Entreat means, I urge you, I exhort you. He says it twice. Grammatically, not necessary. You could have said, I entreat you, Odia, and Syntaggy. But he says, I entreat you, Odia. I entreat Syntaggy, I urge you. This is not a polite suggestion. This is please do this get this sorted out Isn't interesting? are we that urgent and desperate for our unity here at cumber baptist church if not maybe we don't see something that paul sees that our unity has everything to do with almost everything the reality of god in our midst the truth of the gospel that we say we believe our witness to a watching world. Remember John 13, 35? We've been in John. Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's like saying, I think, you, you want to see the united, bit. Christians are the, the loving, united people. Jesus says, They will know you follow me because you are acting like me. They'll know you're my disciples because you love one another. And that's, that's what it means to follow me. I'm just... That's what I'm like. And if that's true, then also the reverse is true. They will know you are not Christians if you do not love one another. Or even worse, they will think that I'm not loving because you say you follow me and you don't love one another. The lives of Christians together can either commend the truth, of course, and reality of the gospel, or it just denies it. So, brothers and sisters, it would be very hard to overstate the importance of our unity together in the New Testament. John 17, 11, remember Jesus prays on the night that he was betrayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus prays that on the night he is betrayed. In Matthew 5 21, Jesus actually says that you should kind of, you should, a person should actually pause their worship of God. If they, there in the midst of their worship, remember, hey, someone has something against me. So, no, it's, it's, Jesus doesn't say, oh, you remember that you have things against other people. It's even, it's actually a step more radical than that. It's, I remember they have something against me. I should go and make that right. I should take initiative in that. So Jesus says, Matthew 5, 21. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Then come and offer your gift. Like come back, worship, but you should pause. You should not continue. In the kind of like a kind of charade, like, I love like I'm so thankful for his reconciliation, but I will not reconcile with that person. Or 1 John 4:19. He writes, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Paul, in in, actually all the letters that he writes to the churches each church when he writes to them includes at some stage in that letter a call to live together in harmony to live together in peace let me read some of them romans 15 5 and they just let this land on us kind of it kind of accumulating accumulating romans 15 5 may the god of endurance and encouragement grant you in rome right to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.10 I appeal to you, brothers, now in Corinth, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Galatians lists the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul says, I urge you, now he's talking to the church in Ephesus, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Here it is. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Oh, he wants to say that same thing to the Colossians as well. Colossians three thirteen bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive what about the thessalonians do they miss out no first, first thessalonians 5:13 be at peace among yourselves and we urge you brothers Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. It's amazing. Because Paul writes to different churches, and they all have different issues. Right? Some doctrinal, some behavior, holiness, all, like all these kinds of things. But one thing he'll tell all of them, no matter what the unique circumstances live in harmony together, love one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, unity in the body of Christ. Now, we have to be careful. There are people that Paul does not want us to be at peace with. Uh, that actually plays out in the book of Philippians. It's, it's, it's incredibly instructive to us, the way that Paul, throughout Philippians, deals with just different kind of conflicts that are happening in and around the church, and he, and he, he, he responds to each conflict so uniquely, and it's geared towards the danger that the person um, provides. So I'm just going to go through them. There's four of them, right? So conflict number one in, in, in Philippians... It's in chapter one where Paul says that there are a group of people out there and they are preaching Christ, but they do so in a way that they're trying to hurt me. Right? So they love, they, they preach the true gospel, not heretics. I don't really like Paul. I'm actually trying to afflict Paul while he's in prison. What is, how's Paul going to respond to that? He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. There we go nothing no more conflict nothing to argue about why they preach the true christ i just rejoice in that whatever they think of me that's conflict number one conflict number two start of chapter three it's very different to that paul is dealing with judaizers people who say no you, you can come to jesus but what you also need to do is basically you need to become a jew they are false teachers with a false gospel and paul says in philippians 3 2 look out for the dogs look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's what they are. Look out for them. Steer clear of them. There is no unity to be had with these false teachers, with the false gospel. Too much at stake. They hurt people. Their gospel will lead people to hell. No unity. But then there's a different group. Further on in chapter 3, 3 verse 15... These are immature Christians who don't yet think the same way that Paul thinks about his, you know, his whole life and living for Christ and, and his single mindedness for heaven. And so Paul says about these people, he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. That's so different. So I'm not, I'm not really thinking the same on this. They're not quite. But let us, those of us who are mature, think like this. But let's be patient with those who aren't there yet. Let's help them along the way. God will reveal that to them. No need to divide. Amazing. But then a few verses later, Paul's talking about a different group. So that's been three different groups of people. Now here's the fourth one. He says this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So there's another conflict in the church. There are people that Paul literally calls, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They walk that way. So it seems like it's not false doctrine, but their lives, their walk. That's the, that's the meaning of the term. They walk this way. This is their, their life. This is their, their way of life. And they live in such a way that is sinful, unholy. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says, I am writing this with tears. I am weeping as I write this that this is how some people live. So you see that? It's like four different conflicts, four very different responses. See the danger if you get those wrong? You just mix and match those up. You imagine if you have an immature Christian and you go, you are an enemy of the cross. Imagine the, da- the damage you do. Or you have a false teacher with a false gospel and you act like it's no big deal. Oh, God will reveal this to you. Let the mature just get the true gospel. He doesn't do that. No, he says, dog and evildoer. Or someone preaches the true gospel, they just don't like you. And you want to go, you dog, you evildoer. <laughs> no. And Paul's like, whatever. He's preaching the true gospel. I don't think the church generally has been very good at this or maybe is good at this right now where we'll just kind of some people either will downplay the seriousness of false gospel and go hey unity let's just have unity some people on the other end of the spectrum will see the hint of something off and we want to call the person a heretic and divide over it or they'll take a small aspect of church life and go i'm out i'm out of here i'm out of here we will divide over things we ought not to divide over. So we come to Euodia and Syntyche, or as my dad likes to call them, Odious and Suntouchi. Isn't that good? I wonder how they are feeling at this stage of the letter. Could go a couple of ways, eh? I think, like by this time, by this stage of the of the letter, it could be going the way of repentance. Like they're sitting there and they're listening to it, and they're probably on different sides of the room in Philippi, and they're listening to it, and there's tension in the air. But as they're hearing this, poor lay out the, the the life of of the Christian life that ought to follow Jesus, and, and and have his as their example, and you consider the needs of others more than yourself, and the need to not complain, and the need for humility, and all of this. Their their conscience is pricked, and then. They, and, and, and she's thinking to herself, man, as soon as this letter is finished, I'm walking straight over to Suntachi. And I'm not going to call her that anymore. I'm going <laughs> to go over to her and I'm going to say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Maybe. Could go the other way. The pointing the finger way. Oh man, I hope Odius heard this, you know. I hope she heard that little bit about that because that is, that is her. And then both their names are read out. And I'm sure everyone turns and looks at them and goes, ooh. Verse 2, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. there's some things that we do know about the situation there's some things obviously we just don't know what's the main thing we don't know it's actually what's the nature of this conflict is it you don't actually know that now i just think that probably in god's providence that's a really good thing for us. Because if, if they actually gave the detail of what was going on between Euodia and Syntyche, we, you know, as humans, we would tend to look at it and go, well, that's not our, that's not my situation. That's, not, that's like a little bit different. That's got nothing to do with what I'm going through with this person. That, like if Paul only knew you know, this person that I have to deal with. No, he leaves it vague, because I, and I think that's really good for us because we can apply this, the principles of this to us. So that's what we don't know. What do we know? Well, a few things. First, we know that Euodia and Syntyche are Christians. They're Christians. They're not dogs and evildoers. They're not enemies of the cross. Notice what the last line of the the two verses describes them as. Whose names are in the book of life. That's awesome their names are in that book that is kept in heaven of all the names of the redeemed of God. Revelation 13, 8 describes those who decide to worship the beast and describes them as this, they are everyone whose names have not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 20 describes Judgment Day as the day when all the books are opened and one of the books is the book of life. And only those whose names are in that book get to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And it says in verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Luke ten twenty. Um, the disciples come back from like a kind of successful short-term mission trip. You know, Jesus would send them out, go off, go, go for it. And then they come back. And they've come back and it's been very, they've had a great time. They're rejoicing in all kinds of things. And then Jesus says this in Luke 10, 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So then this is what it means to have your name written in the book of life. It's a list of people who are kept secure in heaven. It's a list of the people who are forgiven of God. A list of the people that Jesus died for. He shed his blood for. It's a list that was written there before there was even a world. And to be on that list is of more value than anything else. More value than having spirits do as you command them. No, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice your name is written in the book of heaven. And Paul says two names that are written in that book as Euodia and Syntyche. In the context of them dividing and having disagreement, Paul says, your names are in the same book. You're on the same list, the book of life. I just imagine, I, I just think of all the different implications this would have to our life together of unity, to the, to the lives of Euodia and Syntyche. It immediately puts their disagreement into perspective, doesn't it? Oh man, our names are in the book of life. It reminds them that what they have in common is far greater than whatever it is that is dividing them in that moment. It might cause them to ask, do I actually need to win this fight? Oh yeah, our names are written in the book of life. And so is hers. It reminds them that God loves the other one. Oh, he's written her name in the book of life. I was ready to to delete her name from my iPhone. I I was ready to get rid of her out of my... And God's got her name in his book. It reminds them that they will surely spend all of eternity together in heaven. You can cut her off now, but you'll have all eternity together. Paul mentions it because he wants them to live in light of that ultimate reality. He can name them here in this letter because they're already named in the most important place, and that is the book of life. So we know they are Christians. That's what we know about Yoder and Syntyche. We know they're Christians. That's not all that we know. We also know that they're not just Christians, but I think they're actually, they have been exemplary Christians. See what Paul says, verse 3? Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. So Euodia in Syntyche, you, should, you ought not to think of them as kind of like, oh man, these are some like, you know, kind of s- sitting around at home, gossiping ladies, watching daytime soap opera, kind of like, that's where my mind immediately goes, so things like that. It's like, no, that's not, that's not the picture at all. These are like exemplary women, godly. They have a history of doing exactly the kinds of things that Paul has been saying, you all should live like this. Right. In Philippians 1, 27, Paul, just at the start of the body section of the letter, he says, when I hear about the church in Philippi, let me tell you the things that I want to hear about you. He says this, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See you hear that? At the start of the body section, that's what I want to hear. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What did he just say describes Euodia and Syntyche? They are women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. I have been doing the things that Paul says. This is what this is exactly what I want to hear about you all. Paul calls them fellow workers. Do you see that? Fellow workers, a title that Paul reserves for those who have been helping him in his ministry to declare the gospel to the Gentiles. These are my fellow workers. So this puts them alongside other people like Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy, Titus, Epaphroditus, Philemon, Mark and Luke, and now Euodia and Syntyche. How they helped Paul exactly, we don't know. It doesn't really matter. The point is that at one time, they were just glorious, wonderful examples of members in a church doing the exact things that Paul wanted them all to be doing for one another. I think this is so helpful. I think this is so helpful because I, I was thinking about this. Okay, Some, sometimes we can just be knocked off balance by, and, and it's just good to know, like the godliest among us can be unwise. And we see people and go, man, they are so godly, you know, and, and, and they're, they're up. But we all are humans. We all fail. We all fall. We're all needy. I mean, it might have been very confusing for the. I imagine it was very confusing for the church in Philippi to see them, kind of not agreeing. Yeah, Euodia and Syntyche, they're like crazy godly, and they're like this. How is this possible with godly women like this? Well, no one is beyond the need of help. So, how are we going to resolve this? That's the situation. How are we going to resolve this? There's two things in the passage. First thing they need to do is, Paul says, agree in the Lord. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The the, the word agree there is phroneo. It literally means to think the same thing, to be of the same mind. That word has actually been used a number of times in Philippians. So 1 verse 7, Paul says this, it is right for me to feel, phroneo, feel, think this way about you all. Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, Complete my, my joy by being of the same mind. Froneth, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Chapter 3, verse 15. Let those of us who are mature, I remember read this earlier, that those of us who are mature, what? Think, Froneth, think this way. So Paul wants for this church to have their thoughts. their their understanding actually be the same. It's a controversial thing these days. Why should we all have to agree on everything? Paul says that's, that's Christian unity in the church. The way you understand the Christian life, the way you understand Christian doctrine, we ought to be of the same mind. We think together the same. It's why churches have always, you know, from very early days, had things like statements of faith. We go it's just because we all should have we should all be of the same mind that's why a church will have like a constitution which says we should all be of the same mind in how we live together or a membership agreement it's like that means we're all of the same mind you now church can have all kinds of diversities which are wonderful and glorious right we rejoice in diversity as far you know ethnic diversity giftings ages backgrounds socioeconomic status all kinds of glorious tapestry that come together in the church of god wonderful diversity but diversity is not to be found in like important doctrines that hold a church together or our lives together i've kind of made this point before i don't think anyone would actually want that it's like you know just rejoicing in the diversity of the church i just love how i just have no idea how people are going to treat me you know i just love that some people punch me and some people hug me and i just love the diversity here you know well, the teaching is so diverse. Sometimes it's just false. It's just straight up false, false gospel. But sometimes it's true, and I just love how it's diverse. It's like, no, nah, that's no. Actually, you read the letters. Paul's constantly saying, think the same, live the same, be on the same page. I think the main threat to this in our day is is kind of idea that the Bible's not that clear and we can't actually just demand that we all kind of agree on the Bible. I do not think that. It's like, well, we've got the Bible, but we've got all our like different interpretations and who's to know who's right and who's wrong and how can we have such things like statements of faith? There's a historical example of this in the conflict between Martin Luther and the Catholic theologian Erasmus. And Michael Reeves explains their conflict like this. I just think this is really common um, in the church today. So Michael Reeves... Is an author, he's alive today, but he wrote about their conflict between Martin Luther and Erasmus. And he said this, The differences all came down to how Luther and Erasmus understood Christianity. Erasmus was the sort who was always saying how things in the Bible were so much more complicated than they appear at first sight. Thus the masses would either need a great mind like his to understand them, or, if even he could not understand them, then they must be numbered among the many mysteries of that obscure text, the Bible. Given how unclear the Bible was, he deemed that Christians should not try to settle doctrinal questions such as the Trinity, God's role in salvation and other such tricky issues. God has left them vague and therefore they must be unimportant and probably unhelpfully distracting from the more important business of getting on with Christian living. I mean, that's really common. I mean, the Bible is just so vague. The Bible is just a mystery who can say what this means well it's not our conviction it's our conviction that God's actually a good communicator we can be bad listeners but God's a good communicator and he makes the main things very plain so Paul calls you here in Syntyche and he says you need to agree in the Lord notice the location of their agreement there agree where in the Lord So he doesn't even just say you just got to agree with one another or compromise or something like that why they both might be wrong you know it's not like one has to be right they might both be off where should our agreement be then cumber baptist church in the lord their disagreement here is obviously not in the lord it's not what the lord wants it's not his desire for them it's outside of him outside of his ways so he says, agree in the Lord. So that's the first thing. To resolve this conflict, this division, agree in the Lord. The second thing is this. Paul says, somebody help them. See verse 3? Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, I can't, I'm going to spend time speculating on who the, exactly this true companion, who exactly it is, we can just agree. They must know. He must know. And that's good enough. What matters is to see that Paul enlists the help of others to help them, to help Euodia and Syntyche. He says, true companion, get involved. Get involved in the lives of Euodia and Syntyche. Help these women. Don't stand idly by. Don't just watch as relationships deteriorate and fall apart in the church. Help them. Get amongst it." So Paul doesn't, interesting, isn't it? Paul doesn't just leave it at his command in the letter. You might go, man, Paul just said they need to agree in the Lord. Isn't that enough? Paul doesn't think so. Paul says, hey, agree in the Lord. Now, somebody help them do that. This church, isn't it? That's so helpful. Now, he tells them to agree, and someone must help them. They will need real people walking with them and knowing them. By God's grace, He's put them in a church full of people who love them and know them and want to help them. So it would be, well, I guess it would be better if you and went and sought that help. He so said, we're not getting along. Could other people, brothers, sisters in the church, come and help us? Because we're struggling. That would be awesome. That should be common. But it's clearly God's design for Christians to be in churches, hey, with real people. Partly because we just need one another. Passages like Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another every day, he says, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's like, just do it every day. Like, every day. While it's today. Hebrews 10.24. He says, now let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's saying, like, consider, think through, have strategy. How can I stir up others to love and good works? How might I do that? And and, and the author of Hebrews is saying, well, one of the ways is do not neglect gathering together. That is actively, he says, that's how you encourage one another. All the more, all the more. it's actively discouraging you know this in your families it's actively discouraging if some people in the family just almost never turn up to family events but this is our church family this is our family gathering you 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 would be actively discouraging to not see you if you could be here and you didn't come now one of the ways is to consider how how might i stir others up to love and good works that means that just changes the way we might walk into the service, hey, I'm thinking not, okay, will I like this, you know, because I think we betray our consumerist, consumerism oftentimes in our reviews of maybe what we think of the Sunday service, like, you know, it's quite, it's often just so self-centered, isn't it, sometimes, like, I don't know about that, you know, that bit there, I don't know about that preacher, he, you know. I don't know about that guitar player this morning. He's, you know, I'm just not sure about that. Yeah, but what if we came in thinking, how might I stir up others to love and good works? I think in our culture, we miss church so easily. We find it easy to miss church. What's underneath that? Probably because we think, I'll be okay. I won't, miss, I won't be injured by that, spiritually. But again, look, think about who we're thinking about. But there might have been people who needed you. Maybe you didn't need it. But there were people here, brothers and sisters, who were, who were in need of you to consider how to stir them up to love and good works. They needed your prayers. They needed your welcome. And you missed out. Here's how we say these kinds of things in our, in our membership commitment. We say it like this, right? We read this out, every member. So you know this, but here it is anyway. Just this bit around our unity and life together. Say, we will work and pray together for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Choosing unity over division in areas of preference. We will work together in love exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. We will faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require and speak the truth in love so that we may build one another up and give grace, not gossip, to those who hear. We will not forsake to regularly gather with our local church family nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep and endeavour with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. You see, an underlying all of that is just the basic assumption, we need each other. Are we doing that? Are you doing that? Because Paul obviously thinks, my letter is not enough. I'm writing this letter, but it's not enough. What is he calling? True, trustworthy. Oh, I've lost his name. Someone help me. True companion. Help these women. So just maybe by the Spirit, he's saying to you, "Hey, help these people. Help them. That's what you're here for. That's why we have one another." There is a scene. Um, now I'm going into a Lord of the Rings reference, so don't turn out if you're not interested because you'd have to have a heart of stone to not be moved by this moment. (laughs) So (laughs) so, That was divisive, wasn't it? Um, So you have Sam and Frodo, you know, and the way they really win in the end is by companionship. They're not bigger, they're not stronger, they're not like more agile than anyone else, but they make it all the way and they're climbing up Mount Doom, they made it into Mordor, they're climbing up Mount Doom, that fiery volcanic mountain where they have to destroy the ring. And they have that moment, if you remember it, where they just collapse on the side of the mountain. Like, they just can't keep going. Frodo's got nothing left, carrying the burden of the ring for so long. And Sam tries to encourage him. He says, hey, remember home. And he like, encourages him, he says, like, think about the Shire and all these things. But Frodo can't hear it. He's just paranoid about the evil that he's been carrying and the evil all around him. And do you remember what Sam does? He says eventually come on Mr. Frodo I can't carry it for you but I can carry you and he picks him up and carries him up the hill and that's impacting for me because I think about the church I think I've experienced that I have had burdens which you can't carry but I have been carried by brothers and sisters who love me and care for me okay just final thoughts It's the very nature of having church membership made up of Christians that we can believe this about one another here. Your name is written in the book of life. Isn't that awesome? To see one another? go, All these brothers and sisters, names are written in the book of life. Eternally safe. Which means we're safe to deal with whatever comes up together. Now, it's not easy at times, of course. Like the old poem goes, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. I remember being at a conference and a a speaker, um, he was from England, uh, and they they had a panel, and and the audience got to ask questions, and, and someone in the audience said, hey, can you help me think through, like, how do I love people in the church who are just hard to love? And I loved the, you know, older English, I loved his response. His response was this, oh, and you're so easy to love? That's such a good answer. (laughs) Oh, you are? Said, I know I'm not. (laughs) But we love one another because we've been loved by God's grace. We forgive one another because we have been forgiven. Christians are, by definition, the most loved and forgiven people on the planet. Therefore, we ought to be the most loving and forgiving people on the planet. And the measure of God's grace is to be the measure of grace we give to one another. And what is the measure of God's grace? That the Father sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die for sinners. While they were sinners, Christ showed His love. And He died for us. He took the punishment we deserve for our sin and he reconciled us to God, made us his children, heirs with him, given us his righteousness. We receive promises like Jeremiah 31, 34. God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So we don't just receive. We're not just, as Christians, we're not just receivers, right, of love and forgiveness and reconciliation. We are overflowers of all of these things to the people that God literally has put together in our church for us to do that too. To do all of these things for one another so if you're not a christian here this morning um i did say near the start we all want you know we all want unity right just the world's just grasping it but what you know well this is the offer but it springs from something else and that is being reconciled to god that's the offer this morning you too friend can be forgiven of all of your sins you can enter into a relationship with god almighty and have your name written in the book of life that that secures you for now and eternity. And so throw yourself on the mercy of God uh, this morning. Let me pray. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with the Lord Jesus Christ that together we may with one voice glorify God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.